Good morning, church. Happy summertime to all of you. I'm excited to jump back in the series that I started a few weeks ago called Christ and Culture. Uh, Morgan, wherever you are, who just led us in communion a few moments ago, thank you for leading me to the table this morning. Um, that phrase you use, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, really ministered to my heart. Uh, it's so good to be back with you. I missed you last week. And um, look, there's a phrase that we've often heard. We've heard this in songs. We've, you've probably heard sermons on it. It's a phrase that we are in the world, but not of the world. Uh, and this is a phrase that, I mean, you read the Bible, you come away like knowing that that phrase may not show up exactly like that in the Bible, but you've heard songs about it. We've probably had conversations about it, that we as Christians are in the world, but not of the world. But, but here's the thing. Most people, I'm not going to say that all Christians, but many Christians either lean heavily into being like in the world or not of it at all. And not understanding like this balance, this dance of being in the world, but not of the world. So I'm in this series, and uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time because there are a lot of Christians that have fully assimilated with culture, meaning that wherever the winds and waves of culture go, we just go with them. However culture wants to define or redefine any form of morality, we just go along with it. And if this happens, when Christians just assimilate and just go along with whatever culture is doing, a lot of times what happens with Christians is this, is we reduce Christianity to being good people and nice people and people who are servants, but there's no proclamation or declaration or evangelism when it comes to announcing the name of Jesus to others. So the call of Jesus isn't for you just to be fully in the world, but then it's also possible for a lot of Christians to, to not be in the world, but to not be of the world at all. And what happens when we're not in the world at all is we live sheltered lives where we hang out with Christians, associate with Christians, go to church with Christians, function with Christians, social activities are with Christians, and we have no contact with non-believers at all. And this is not what God has called the church to either. But this is a hard balance of what do we say yes to and what do we say no to. This is nothing new. This has gone on with Christianity for 2,000 years because I know today that there are some people who do not need to go to bars at all. I can think of alcoholics, people who are prone to addiction. But I also have friends who have started churches in bars, who've had ministries that have been very successful in bars. I know people who've gone to seminary, have a theology degree, and they've gone on to become bartenders because they know that a lot of lonely people and people who suffer from depression often go to bars and they want to be there not just to serve them up a drink, but to serve them up the gospel. Now, you may disagree with some of that, but the question I often have to ask is this. Is it possible that God may show up in places that we may not think God would show up? And isn't this what happened with Jesus a lot? Jesus got in trouble by religious people because Jesus often showed up in places where people did not think Jesus should be showing up. Uh, I know that almost all of us don't need to step into exotic clubs. But I also know in this church there was a ministry 15 to 20 years ago that started by a few women who began ministering to women who were caught up in that industry. And it was successful and it thrived. Now, I don't need emails from people in this church saying, I want to be a part of that ministry this week, all right? That's not what we need. But there are times where God shows up in places that we may never think God would show up. So here's the thing. I think a lot of us in our prayer lives, we want God to show up where we are. But I think God is speaking to his church today saying, Will you come and show up where I am? Will you show up where I want to go and where I'm trying to call the church to go? 
And this is nothing new. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your written Bible or if your Bible's on your phone, I want you to open up to 1 Peter. And I wish I could just unpack all the 1 Peter to you today, but this would take hours. So I think I'm going to have to come back and preach a series on 1 Peter down the road, but I want to hit on just a few things in 1 Peter because I think this is so applicable. It's so practical. It's going to be helpful for us today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, here's what Peter writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the, what's the next word? To the exiles. Some of your versions, to the strangers, to the aliens. Look in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles, some of your versions may have strangers, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. There's another place in 1 Peter where Peter refers to the church as exiles. Now, this is not a phrase or a term that we often use to describe each other, right? I doubt many of you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror and said, let's go get this day, you exile of the world. You know, I doubt you did that. If I were to ask you what's a phrase that Jesus, when it comes to your identity in Jesus, what's a phrase or a word that comes to mind? I think most of us would think of phrases or words like children of God, or I'm a child of God, I'm saved by God, I'm redeemed by God. But, but here, a few different times, Peter refers to people as exiles, as strangers, as aliens. So Peter in 1 Peter, uh, 16 times he refers to the suffering of people in the church. 16 times he speaks about suffering, and suffering something Peter knew well in his life. He was persecuted, he spent time in prison, he was beaten. He, uh, tradition has it, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but tradition has it that Peter died on a cross just like Jesus. He was crucified. And this was just before 87. Tradition has it, though, when Peter was crucified, Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die the same death of Jesus. He knew all about suffering. 16 times he speaks to the church addressing suffering, and I think for two different ways. One reason he addresses suffering is he wants to comfort the church in their suffering. Some of you could use that today. The other reason Peter speaks 16 times about suffering was to prepare the church for more of it, which is also a message the church needs today. So Peter speaks 16 times about suffering, using language like exiles and strangers. John chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them at the very beginning of the book, exiles, strangers. In chapter 2, verse 11, other times. Now, here's here's what I need to try to convince you of today. When Peter uses the phrase exile, aliens, and strangers, I don't think Peter is only referring to your eternal status or to the church's eternal status, to where heaven is your permanent home and this is a temporary home, so you are exiles and strangers here waiting for your permanent home. There's truth in that. But I think Peter is speaking to people who would have received this letter from him. They would have heard this word and they would have received it while they are trying to interpret life and faith in the context that they were in. Where they were, they were exiles They were strangers. They were aliens. Now, Peter's primarily writing the Gentiles in 1 Peter. But for Jews, for decades in that time, before Jesus and even after Jesus, they often felt like they were exiles no matter where they lived. Especially Jews in the Roman Empire, they they felt like exiles. For one reason, it was hard to become a Roman citizen. 
There were a few things you had to do. You had to pay up a lot of money, or, or maybe there were certain gifts you could receive by people in authority to become a citizen, but, but not every Jew was a citizen, which meant if they didn't subscribe to the other gods, or if they went public with their faith in any kind of way, they could be exiled. And there are multiple stories of times when Jews and Jewish Christians, and then Christians, were exiled. Tiberius one time took 4,000 Jews and removed them from the cities that they lived in. There were times where men who were old enough to fight were removed from their towns and exiled to certain islands. In Acts chapter 18, verse 2, you're told that Jews in AD 49 were removed from Rome. They were kicked out for five years. There were times when this stuff would happen. And for Gentiles who had been pagans for all their life, think about it, there were people who had no clue who Jesus was. And maybe at the age of 35, 45, 55, hear the gospel for the first time, and they become Christians And now they're faced with decisions of what do they say yes to and what do they say no to? How do they live out this life with Jesus? And they were living in times when they were being tried. And there were neighbors who were pressing and had charges coming against them for three primary reasons. One reason was monotheism, which simply means that uh, they worshiped one God. Because they were living in a time where um, it was just thought that anyone living in the Roman Empire, you had multiple gods that you would worship. So the problem wasn't that people worship Jesus or worship Yahweh. The problem is if people only worship Jesus. If they only worship Yahweh. So there was monotheism that was a problem. Another problem was evangelists. Because anytime people went public in their faith and trying to convince and urge other people to become a Christian... They were on trial because they're asking other people to forsake all of their gods and to only worship one. And this became a major problem. And the third is that the church became known for their compassion for the poor. That there were times later on where there were emperors who even made statements like, man, why is that group of people, why are they taking better care of our poor than we take care of the poor? So it's that they were worshiping one God. It's that when Christians would go public with their faith and ask other people to go public in theirs, they were often on trial for it. There was maybe not physical persecution, but social and emotional and persecution that would have all kinds of consequences that came with that. And this compassion for the poor. Eliot, this one theologian, he points out that Christians in that time might have responded to all of this hostility that was coming against them. And it led them to intensify their isolation from non-believers. And I hear that phrase, and I think it's what so many people in the church have done today. Is that when there are challenges in the world, and things to be afraid of, we intensify our isolation from non-believers in the world. Because whenever fear has its way with the church, this is what happens. When fear has its way with people, they shrink. When fear has its way with the church, the church shrinks and goes into its safe places and spends nothing but time in prayer asking for security instead of following the way the church prayed in the the book of Acts, begging God for boldness. First Peter, I want to give you three things just to consider and just one thing hopefully God can speak into your life today that you can go home and think about a little more. Three things about First Peter. First Peter is about helping Christians endure in the face of their neighbors negative reactions to the practicing of their Christian faith. So for five chapters, Peter's trying to prepare the church for this. I want you to think about it. Like what was it like if you were a pagan for let's just say 35 years, for 35 years of your life, You had attended certain festivals because there were a lot of festivals to attend. 
There were a lot of social events that you would have been a part of, and now you become a Christian. And which events could you still go to, and which events did you not need to go to? And imagine and if you were a wife or you were a servant living in a time, and a lot of times we read the Bible and we just automatically like put it on our culture, but take it back 2,000 years ago where they were male-dominated, male-driven households and men made decisions for their entire households, not just for their families, but also for their servants. One of the reasons Peter addresses wives and servants later on is because he's speaking to, like, what if you were a wife or you were a servant and you came to hear about the gospel of Jesus and you surrender your life to Jesus, you're baptized into Christ, and, and, but, but you're in a household where the man of the household is demanding that there are other gods that do not leave the home. Like, how do you live out your Christian faith in that? So he's trying to teach the church and prepare the church and talk to the wives and talk to the servants about what it means to follow Jesus with, when you deal with all of this peer pressure and social pressure and forms of pressure that come from the authority. So he's teaching the church and preparing them that in the midst of hostility and negative reactions, you are still called to practice your Christian faith. The second thing is this. First Peter is about helping the church live up to the challenge of being a faithful witness. This was big. We need this today. Because I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you became a Christian 2,000 years ago living in Turkey, which is who Peter is writing to at this time. And there's pressure on you from your boss or your employers or your friends or your neighborhood. There's pressure on you. People saying, hey, don't talk to me about your faith anymore. I will report you. If, if all this stuff is going on and then you go to church and you're meeting in the house church and they're let's just say a few dozen people there and there are pastors there and they're reading letters, maybe the gospels, maybe a little bit of Paul or Peter being read and they're telling you that the call of the gospel is that the spirit of God is setting you on fire to go and be bold and to be a witness and not to be afraid and to speak up for Jesus and declare Jesus knowing that there may be consequences that come with it. There's pressure from the outside and you come into the church and the church is telling you, hey, God has prepared you to be a living temple and God is working in you and you've got to go. And Peter writes also encouraging them to embrace marginal status, that they are aliens and they are exiles and they are strangers. And this is hard because many of us, the way we live our lives, it's as if we have embraced our lives as permanent status. I remember the story of the preacher who went to Atlanta. He was speaking at a mega church, which happened to be in a really nice neighborhood. Thousands of people attended this church. And he stood up in front of this crowd. And he said, the first thing he said, he said, it's an honor to be here before you today. But he said, coming into your church and seeing the cars many of you drive and how precious you think they are and the homes many of you live in, I wish I could take a can of spray paint and spray one word on your possessions, and that's temporary. Temporary. Because many of us treat our homes as if they're permanent and they live forever, or our cars like they're permanent and they live forever. When you've been called by God to embrace things as if they're just temporary. And Peter's encouraging them to embrace their marginal status and to live a life in full faith that God does the unexpected in unexpected places, calling the church to embrace this God who works in unexpected ways. There's a pastor up in New York City. Maybe some of you have seen him. He's been on like Oprah's uh, Soul Search in her interview. He's been, in, he's been on uh, Good Morning America, Pastor Carl Lentz. 
Pastor Carl, he's written books and he has a church. It's, they promote themselves as a church for all people. And I've heard him preach a couple of times. That man loves the word of God and just wants the word of God to reach people. So he's in New York City, preaches at a large mega church. It's a Hillsong church, a church plant in New York. And he takes, um, some people have pushed against him because some people call him the rock star preacher because he has reached out to a, God has opened doors for him to minister to a lot of celebrities, musicians, artists, athletes. In fact, in his church, there's a section for famous people, uh, which at first you hear that and you're like, why? Like we should never do that. And, And I totally get it. But I remember Max Licato who preaches down in San Antonio and in his church, there's George Strait and there's David Robinson. And they've had to stand up in front of their church sometimes and just tell people like, hey, do not ask for autographs during communion. Like, don't do it. Like, if you're passing a tray on David Robinson's road, don't hand a, something for him to sign. Like, just don't do it. Leave him alone. Let people come and just worship. And, and part of me is like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a celebrity and to try to go to a church and connect with God when people are like taking selfies, you know, during the third song. You know, who knows what it would be like. A few years ago, there was a pastor on the West Coast who introduced Pastor Carl in New York to one celebrity, and it was Justin Bieber. And he began meeting with Justin Bieber, and this was a time a couple of years ago when Bieber was, and he was in a dark place. The Biebs, I don't know what you call him. Should we call him Justin Bieber Biebs? Jay Biebs? I don't know, all right? But Justin, it was Justin Bieber, and a couple of years ago, he was in a dark place. And it was Pastor Carl who was meeting with Justin, and they struck up a friendship. And he was just speaking words of truth and gospel in his life. And Justin knew a lot of this. He was raised with a mom who taught him a lot about faith. But up until that point, faith had been like the faith of his mom's, not the faith of his own. And one night it was Justin who looked at Pastor Carl and said, Tonight's the night. I've got to have a fresh start. I've got to be baptized tonight. But it was like midnight. But then because where they were in New York, they were trying to think, where can we baptize Justin tonight? Because they were in a place where there were paparazzi waiting for them as soon as they stepped out of where they were and they didn't want to go to a hotel pool or so they're trying to call up condos and friends. At three in the morning, Pastor Carl calls up Tyson Chandler, who's a basketball player. Now Tyson Chandler has played basketball for a lot of teams. He's played for the Suns and the New Orleans, back when they were the, I guess, Pelicans or Hornets. He's played for multiple teams. I'll put the picture because he played one year for the Mavericks when they won the championship, so I thought you you would want to see that one. Tyson Chandler is a man of faith. He attends the Hillsong Church. So Pastor Carl calls him up at 3 a.m. and says, Tyson, we need to use your rooftop pool. And Tyson said, man, we we don't have access to it today, but you can use my bathtub. Because you're, if you're an NBA player and you're over seven feet tall and, and you've been in the league for over 10 years and you want to take a bath when you get home, it's like a hot tub, right, to get in there. He's like, but you can use my bathtub. So Pastor Carl shows up, knocks on Tyson's door. The door's open and there he is with Justin Bieber. And they go in and they describe it as one of the holiest moments that Pastor Carl has experienced in all of his years of ministry. How the Spirit of God filled that place. And they witnessed his baptism. And then Tyson Chandler's wife went in the kitchen and prepared a meal for them at like four in the morning. Because that's what Christians did in the book of Acts. When the lost were found, there were meals and there were celebrations. Now, I don't tell you this story to 
encourage you to go and connect with celebrities because a lot of you get in trouble if you try to do that, all right? It's that God is the God of the unexpected. Asking you to join Him in unexpected places, praying for people, unexpected people. Just being faithful wherever you are. And here's what Peter says to the church. And just underline a few of these things. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says this. Like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He tells the church that they are little temples and that they're a priesthood of all believers. That they are all priests. Meaning that because you are a temple of the living God, God has chosen And it blows my mind that God has done this. He has chosen to live in you, to work in you and through you. So you become moving, living temples of the holy God. And that we are priests. Not that we get to forgive sins or we've been given the power to do that. But we are the ones who take people who don't know Jesus or who are suffering in life. And we introduce them and we point them to the one who can save them and heal them. We are temples and we are priests. In chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. And listen to verse 12. You conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. You conduct yourselves honorably among the outsiders, the pagans. So you do not repay evil for evil. No matter if you're driving on Sam Cooper, right? You don't repay evil for evil. You conduct yourselves honorably among them. And even though they malign you as evildoers, that they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter refers a lot to holiness and what it means for the church to be a holy people. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And I want to stop right there. Because in the Greek, that's not exactly how it is worded. In your English Bibles, it does. Because that makes sense to us. Prepare your minds for action. In the Greek, it's literally gird the loins of your mind. And now you see why people decided to say, let's just tell them prepare their minds for action, right? (laughs) Not gird your loins of your mind. But this was referring to a time when People wore the long robes, and often what they would do when they had to walk a long journey, or maybe they needed to walk fast or run, is they would pull up the robe so it didn't drag on the ground. They would tie their belt a little tighter. They would, they would get ready for action. They were prepared. I've talked to some of my cop friends in Memphis, and what they say is they, they hate getting in foot chases, but they love when they chase people whose pants are sagging. Because it doesn't matter how fast that person is in gym shorts. If their pants are sagging, it's hard for anybody to run fast with one hand on the pants and the other hand trying to get momentum. It just doesn't work. So what they would do in that time is they would pull up the robes and tighten the belt to prepare them for a longer journey. And the image Peter is giving them is this is what you do for your mind. You've got to get your mind ready for what God has called you to. He's not called your mind just to sit in a room and study about God all the time. There's a Something important in that, but he has called you to action. Get ready for action, wherever it is God is leading us. And then it goes on, and it says this. Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all of your conduct and everything you do. And he says, for it is written, you should be holy as I am holy. Some of you have an image of holiness of maybe someone has told you before, why are you just trying to be like holier than thou, right? 
I think a biblical understanding of holiness is this. Holiness is being separated from sin. And it's acknowledging what sin is. But I think a better understanding of holiness is not just being separated from sin. Holiness is being separated for God. So holiness is not you looking at your sin, trying to get away from it. Holiness is you looking at the face and the heart of God. Chasing after it. Pursuing it with everything you have. Understanding how that holiness defines and identifies you and launches you to be a certain kind of people in the world. So as we leave here today, I want to encourage us every single day to take seriously what moral rebirth is and what it means to rechannel our passions for the gospel of Jesus. That every day there has to be some moral rebirth in us. And every single day there needs to be rechanneled passion, rechanneled allegiance. I was processing the sermon with Casey last night. And we don't do this every Saturday night, but I was just walking her through what I wanted to lay in front of you. And she's like, how do you bring that down to a practical level? How do you call people to go and speak Jesus in the world, to proclaim Jesus? Because I think for some of us, it's a lot easier to try to be Jesus and let's just acts of service and not really know what it means to speak Jesus. And as, as I was processing with her last night, it just hit me. It's like, man, for, for some of us, we struggle talking about Jesus in front of strangers and outsiders because we don't even know how to talk about Jesus when we are with people we love and live with. And maybe that's where it needs to begin. And then we pray prayers and just see what doors God opens and boldly walk through them. So can we stand before we sing this song? Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. And we're going to sing a song about, um, are we singing about going right now? Yeah. I want to ask the elders and the prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people. And after I pray, we'll sing a song and you're invited to go and meet with one of our prayer leaders or come forward if there's something you want to bring in front of the church. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? And I just want to invite you where you are. Uh, just to open your hands before God, raise your hands in prayer before God. That's often open hands that makes my heart become open before God. And God, my prayer today, I know I've laid a lot in front of this church. First Peter excites me because I see how it brings your church to life. And my prayer again today is that if I've said something that has not honored your character, your heart, your truth, your identity, who you are, that those words will fall to the ground and that they will not be remembered, that they will be trampled by you. But if I've spoken words that are true to who you are, may those words continue to mess with us this week. May they establish roots and bear great fruit throughout this week. Through the Spirit of God, will you bring people in this church to life to take seriously what it means to go public with our faith this week? And I pray this in the power and in the boldness and in the authority of the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.